0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter number 20. As you find your place there, I want to thank all of our visitors for being here today. What a blessing to have you with us. And I want to thank those that step up when uh, when we've got folks sick, traveling. And, of course, we've got a lot of folks right now sick and traveling. And I appreciate uh, the faithfulness of God's people, and especially in those times uh, when they step up, step in, and help out. And I appreciate the Lord's goodness, and I appreciate your faithfulness. I'm thrilled that you're here today. Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. You'd be laid up sick for a couple weeks. You'll be excited to be here. Amen? Like I have been for a few weeks, and like some of y'all have been for a few weeks... And I'm just thrilled to be here with you today. Acts chapter number 20, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 15. We're going to read a little bit out of the life of the Apostle Paul, and I want to preach to you something I hope may be a help to you this morning. Acts chapter number 20, verse number 15. Luke, uh, the beloved physician, of course, is recording this history under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and he says that we sailed thence and came the next day over against Chios. And the next day we arrived at Samos and tarried at Trogilium. The next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus, because he would not spend the time in Asia. For he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. When they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, "...with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there." save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. We'll stop our reading there and pray. Father, we love you and thank you for this day. Pray that you would speak to the hearts of those here present. Lord, I know that your word is capable. It is not just uh, sufficient, it's all sufficient. And I know that it is powerful and able this morning to work in our hearts. So I pray that you'd help me this morning to rightly divide the word of truth, to not say anything that would uh, take glory from Christ and to say everything that would render glory unto Him. And I pray for the hearts of each and every person here, mine own first and foremost, that, Lord, we'd have our hearts open unto You, that we'd be honest this morning, uh, that we will have come this morning not just out of formality, not just out of duty or obligation, but truly to hear from heaven, truly to meet with You, truly to have our heart fixed upon Christ more firmly. And we'll be sure to thank You for the work that's done. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Uh, This morning, I want us to take a few moments and examine what the Apostle Paul says here on the shores of the ancient city of Ephesus. He has gathered the church leaders from the church at Ephesus there, and he is giving them a final charge. Paul does not anticipate ever seeing these believers again, but they held a warm place in his heart. Uh, This church had been birthed out of the travail of much controversy. Uh, Paul and his companions just about lost their lives seeing this work started here in Ephesus, and they had come up against much opposition. And now Paul is settled in his heart that he desires to go to Jerusalem, and he believes that that trip to Jerusalem will probably prevent him from ever coming back to the shores at Ephesus. So this touching and tender moment takes place where he gathers these elders together and he encourages them in the Lord. He declares his firm resolution to go to Jerusalem and he warns them that pretty soon there's going to be grievous wolves that are going to come in and and, uh, try to destroy that little body of believers there. And he exhorts and charges them to stay strong in the Lord. Uh, The verse that we read in verse number 24 uh, is a very familiar verse, I think, if you've probably spent any amount of time in the house of God, if you've grown up in church, if you've been around preaching. You've no doubt heard preachers preach on verse number 24. None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself. I'll admit to you, I've preached on that verse quite a bit. And uh, as preachers, so oftentimes uh, we get in a, a a groove of lauding and promoting and exalting uh, everything that the Apostle Paul did and said. And certainly there is much in the life of the Apostle Paul that is to be commended, that is to be uh, emulated, that is to be embraced in our lives. But I'm going to try to do something this morning. You may find it's a hard sell. But I'm going to do my best, and I believe I have clear scriptural ground, and I believe I'll show you that before we're done this morning, to show you why the Apostle Paul, I believe, is completely and utterly wrong in the statement that he makes in this passage. Now, I'm not saying it didn't come from a good place. I'm not saying there was not some nobility that is to be commended and lauded and appreciated in what the Apostle Paul says here. Certainly, as believers, we ought to be willing to lay down even our very lives for the cause of Christ. And Paul eventually would do that very thing. The uh, executioner of Nero would take Paul's head from off of his shoulders and he would leave this life as a martyr for the cause of Christ. But despite all of the nobility of his statement, despite all of the beauty and poignancy of what he utters here, I believe what he's saying is wrong. I believe Paul's in the wrong here. I believe we can see from, from uh, the Word of God that Paul was out of the will of God in the statement that he was making here. You know, it's possible for man to believe he's right and be utterly wrong. Our world is full of people walking around that believe they're right and yet are utterly wrong. The Bible substantiates clearly this fact. It says in Proverbs 16.25 that there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It's possible to do something that seems right, and yet it be wrong. Proverbs twenty one two says every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. It's possible to believe that you're right in what you're doing, and in your eyes to see yourself as justified and yet be wrong. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the Spirit. It's possible to believe you're just in what you're doing, and yet be entirely, completely, and utterly wrong. How many of you know this is a truism of life, that as human beings, we're fallible, we're finite. We make mistakes, we mess up, we get messed up. And I believe when we see the Apostle Paul here, I believe he's got it wrong concerning the direction of his life. Before we get into the text, can I remind you of a passage from Jeremiah 17? I see this all the time, and you probably do too. I I believe, listen, I, I am, however small a government you can conceive, I want smaller government. I don't want the government involved in anything, in any business. I don't want the government involved in anything at all. But I do believe there is one place where I would be a fan of huge, major, bureaucratic, Gestapo-style government oversight, and that is in what goes on church signs. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> now, I'm just going to be honest. I don't mean this in, a, in, in an ugly way, but some folks, some churches, ought to they ought to have their sign took away from them because they're irresponsible. They put things on there that may sound good, but compared with the inspired truth of Scripture are completely wrong. And I very often see this, and you've probably seen it too. I've seen church signs say things like this, follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. And that is one of the great uh, appealing bells of society's philosophy, is follow your heart. Your heart is never wrong. Can I tell you something? Sometimes your heart is wrong. Sometimes it will lead you astray. That's why we need the Word of God. Your heart can be wrong. My heart can be wrong. In fact, Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 17:9. He says that the heart is deceitful. Not only is it deceitful, he says it's deceitful above all things. Not only is it deceitful above all things, but he says that it is desperately wicked. He says, who can know it? In other words, your heart has the ability to deceive you. You can believe something's right and yet be wrong. And I believe that's what the Apostle Paul has done in Acts chapter number 20. I believe he believes he's right. I believe that he believes what he's doing is noble. I believe he believes he's willing to pay the cost. But I believe all that withstanding, I believe that we can see from Scripture that Paul was wrong in the direction that he's going. And it's with that in mind that I want to preach on this thought. The most convincing lie that you'll ever tell. And I'll go ahead and just give you the byline. You ready? The most convincing line you'll ever tell is the lie you tell yourself when you're going the wrong way and you want to go that direction. Paul has purposed in his heart that he wants to go to Jerusalem. It is a noble desire. He wants to go to Jerusalem to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had said in the book of Romans that his heart's desire and prayer for Israel was that they might be saved. He had even said that he could wish himself a curse from Christ for his brethren, for Israel's sake. Paul is coming from a place of nobility. It is a it is an honorable thing that he desires. It may have been right for somebody else. In fact, you want my opinion? I believe it was right for Peter. I believe Peter's responsibility was to be an apostle to the Jews. But that was not Paul's calling in life, and he is going contrary to the revealed truth of God in his life. He has lied to himself in telling himself that what he's doing is right, when in fact it is wrong. The first time Paul ever mentions this desire to go to Jerusalem at this stage in his life is in Acts chapter number 18, verse number 20. It says, when they desired him to tarry longer with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. But I will not, I will, he says, I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. This was the time he was in Ephesus prior to Acts chapter number 20. And he says, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. Can I just say this before I get into the preaching? When you start using phrases like by all means, you better be careful. He's saying, I don't care who has a problem with it, I'm going to Jerusalem. He's saying, I'll do whatever it takes to go there. Sometimes we can become fixated on something in our life. And it appears that's what the Apostle Paul did. Uh, Now, the desire, no doubt, was birthed in his heart before this. But I want to say a word, and we'll get there in course, but let me first say a word about the proof of Paul's self-de- self-deceit. I'll go ahead and tell you, I believe I have an uphill climb this morning. There's probably some of y'all that are sitting there saying, well, who are you, preacher, to judge the Apostle Paul? Let me say, I'm nobody to judge the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was, was a better Christian on his worst day than I will ever be on my best day So don't misconstrue what I'm saying. I don't mean this is rank criticism or vitriol towards him. But I believe we can see from Scripture that God had set a course for his life, that God had revealed what Paul was supposed to be doing, and Paul went in direct contradiction. So some of y'all are sitting there saying, preacher, you're crazy. Paul couldn't have been wrong. How? Who are you to say? Let me prove to you that Paul had deceived himself. It's interesting the course that Paul takes. He does indeed get to Jerusalem. He leaves Ephesus and goes to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, he is arrested by an angry mob of, of Pharisees and of various Jews. and He's put in prison. From there, uh, he is passed to Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, uh, so that the mob doesn't take him and lynch him. And uh, then from Caesarea Philippi, he stays there under house arrest for a couple of years. And finally, Paul appeals unto Caesar. He finally makes his way to Rome. And the story is uh, contained in Scripture of the shipwreck and the journey to Rome and so on and so forth. But while he is at Jerusalem, while he has been arrested, he begins to declare his testimony three times in the book of Acts, the testimony the Apostle Paul is given, twice from his own lips and one from the pen of Luke the physician. And in Acts 22, after he's been arrested, he stands up and he starts to tell what God had done in his life. Now, he's already at Jerusalem, he's already been arrested, and it is only then that he discloses a very interesting detail about his early Christian experience. He says in Acts 22:17, 17, he's describing, telling about after he, got saved. And he says, it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, this is when he is, is younger. This is after he's just been born again. He, he goes to Jerusalem and he says, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance and saw him saying unto me, make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem. Paul's telling this many years later, but he's, he's, he's rehearsing what happened after he got saved. The Lord said to him, make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I am imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. Paul saying, hey, if ever there was anybody that could be a testimony, Lord, I could be a testimony. He's saying, if ever there was anybody that could reach the Jews at Jerusalem... It's me. But listen to the Lord's reply. He said unto me, verse 21 of chapter 22, He said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Can I say as I prove that Paul had deceived himself here, first off, there was a prior word concerning the will of God for his life. God had said many years earlier, and by the way, the problem was not... The Jews, the problem was Jerusalem. Everywhere Paul went, he in fact would first reach to the Jews and, and this was in keeping with the, uh, with the pattern of the gospel. The gospel's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so everywhere he went, he would always witness to the Jews. The problem was not him witnessing to the Jews. The problem was him going to Jerusalem. God had said to Paul, Jerusalem is not your mission field. This is not where I've planted you. I've made you an apostle to the Gentiles, and you are not to minister and labor and work here in Jerusalem. And by the way, in his ministry, he had not. The only time we find Paul going to Jerusalem other than this occasion or after this occasion is in Acts 15. And when he goes, he's not going there to evangelize Jerusalem. He's going there to meet with the other apostles and settle some questions they had about the law and about grace and and try to set a course for the church. But in all these years, despite his familiarity with Jerusalem, despite in his mind him being equipped to reach the Jews at Jerusalem, God had said to Paul, No, Paul, that's not your mission field. You go far hence. I tell you something, there are some things in our Bible we don't have to pray about. There's a prior word about it. There are some things God has revealed. There's some things we don't have to, uh, don't have to pray uh, about whether it's wrong or right to commit adultery. We don't have to pray about whether it's wrong or right to steal. We don't have to pray about whether it's right or wrong to uh, drink and, and get drunk. We don't have to pray about those things. God has established those things. There's a prior word about them. And in your life and mine, I found this to be true, that very often God will confirm His promises, but He rarely confirms His instructions. So what do you mean, preacher? God says something, and until He says otherwise, that's what He said. He'll give an instruction. We see this in the life of Abraham. Over and over and over again, God comes back to Abraham to confirm the promise. But one time God said to him, Abraham, get thee out from thy family. Get thee out from thy kindred. Get thee out from thy land. It was only in Abraham's disobedience that God affirmed that again. God gives us a command and He expects us to obey it. Uh, this is true no doubt if you've raised children you've had the same policy in your home you tell your child to do something that's their orders and and they'll and they like all kids do they'll come to you and say what about now what about now what about now and i say just like you said and just like your daddy said what did i tell you god is our father And He gives us commands, and He gives us a direction in our life, and He gives us a will for our lives. And we're not to deviate from that thing unless He instructs otherwise or constrains us to do something different. There was a prior word. But then I noticed something else that I think proves to me that the Apostle Paul was going the wrong direction. And it's found in verse 23 of our text in chapter number 20. Paul says in verse number 22, Now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit, small, lowercase s, bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. That's interesting that he says that. He says, I don't know what's going to happen. But in fact, he did know what was going to happen. And we know that because verse 23 says, Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Now, the commentators have argued and fussed a little bit about this verse. Some people claim what's being said there is that in every city Paul would go to, there would be bonds and afflictions. But I don't believe that's what's being said, because as he makes this statement, he's not got shackles on his wrists. Uh, he didn't, in, in, in most of the cities that he went to, he was not in prison. That would make the Holy Ghost a liar. No, I think what Paul's saying here, and I think it's clear from Scripture, is that every city that Paul went to, the Holy Ghost of God bore witness to him and said, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, only bonds and afflictions abide you there. In other words, you're going the wrong direction, Paul. And if you keep going that direction, you're going to make shipwreck of your life. Can I say this? There was a prior word, and he reveals that in chapter 22. He says, back when I was a new Christian, God said, leave Jerusalem and go, depart hence far to the Gentiles. Let me say, number two, there were private warnings So what do you mean, preacher, the Holy Ghost was knocking on his heart's door every city he went to and saying, Paul, you're going the wrong direction. Now listen, if you're not saved this morning, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if the Holy Ghost is not inside of you and the Holy Ghost lives inside of every believer, but if you've never been saved, you may not understand what I'm about to say. But I will tell you this, that when I'm going the wrong direction, the Holy Ghost knocks on my heart's door day in and day out and reminds me that I am. You see, that's what He's given. He's given to guide us into all truth. He's given to lead us, to comfort us, yes, but also to corral us into going the right direction in life. And I'm a firm believer that a person doesn't just stumble out of the will of God. We've got to exert our will over God's will. We've got to walk past the private warnings of the Holy Ghost. Everywhere Paul went, every city that he went into, the Holy Ghost said, Paul, why are you going this way? Paul, what are you doing with your life? Paul, you know this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. And some of you this morning, I don't want to, I don't want to play the role of a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I'm barely a preacher. But some of you this morning might be sitting there and you know in your heart of hearts, the Holy Ghost been dealing with you, working on you, and everywhere you turn, it's like that still small voice says, what are you doing? What direction are you going? What are you trying to do in your life? You know what you're doing is wrong. Everywhere he went, the Holy Ghost bore witness. But then I see a third thing that proves to me that Paul had deceived himself. Look over in chapter 21. It's just probably a page over for you. Chapter 21. And listen to what happens after he leaves Ephesus. So he says goodbye to the Ephesian elders, and and he sets sail. And verse number uh, 3 of chapter 21, listen to the the history that Luke records. He says, Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Now, I I don't mean this in an ugly way or in an arrogant way, but I don't know how much plainer you can get. If we believe this to be the inspired Word of God, do you believe that this morning? I believe this is the Holy Ghost-inspired Word of God. I don't believe it's the work of men's hands. I believe it's God-breathed. Then Luke, the physician, records. He doesn't say this was just our opinion. He doesn't say this was just our perspective. He says unequivocally that there were people that told Paul through the Spirit. Capital S, Spirit, told him that he should not go up to Jerusalem. He goes on a little further down in verse 8. He says, the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist which was one of the seven and abode with him and the same man had four daughters virgins which did prophesy and as we tarried there many days there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus and when he was come unto us he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said thus saith the Holy Ghost thus saith the Holy Ghost so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentile. That's pretty clear to me, isn't it to you? And when, he heard the, when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am not ready to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we cease saying, The will of the Lord be done. Can I just, I don't want to get ahead in my sermon, but you notice what he says there? He says, I won't just be bound, I'll die. And then he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, here's the problem. We take all kinds of things and blame them on God. The Holy Ghost. And by the way, what does the Holy Ghost do? Christ made the statement in John chapter number uh, 16. He said that he'll not speak of himself, talking about the Holy Spirit. He'll not speak of himself. He said, he'll testify of me. Uh, Romans chapter number 8 says that the Spirit of God knows the mind of Christ. When the Spirit of God deals with you and leads you and directs you in your life, He is revealing to you the heart and mind of God, the heart and mind of Christ. He's revealing to you what God wants out of your life. Now, in in three places in this passage, people under direction of the Holy Ghost said, Paul, you're going the wrong direction. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. Paul said, I'll do anything for God. Here's the question. Is it what God wants you to do in the first place? You can ascribe it to the Lord. And that's what Paul does. He ascribes it to the Lord. But the fact is, the Lord had made abundantly clear to Paul, this is not the direction that I want you to go. I would say it this way. There was a prior word. There were private warnings. But then we see there was a persistent witness in Paul's life. Everywhere he went, thank God that God gave him people that tried to slow him down, that tried to stop him. Nick, turn me down just a little bit. I don't know if they can handle this much of me. Everywhere that he went in, in his life, God, that's perfect, thank you. God had people that were trying to slow him down, people that were roadblocks, people that were obstacles, people that held up their hands and said, Paul, you're going the wrong direction. I know it, you know it, God knows it, everybody knows it. Paul, please don't go this direction. Let me tell you something, I thank God for some of the people God's put in my life. Hey, listen, sometimes it was the godly counsel of a friend like these disciples that had told him through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Thank God sometimes it was a leather-lunged old man of God like Agabus the prophet uh, that took my girdle in hands and wrapped it around his wrist and was willing to bind himself uh, in the labor and and exertion of preaching the truth of the Word of God and was willing to show me through Scripture the, the, the devastation that lay waiting for me if I kept going that direction. Sometimes, man, hey, listen, it was just the people that loved me the most in life, like Luke the physician, that tried to pull me aside and say, why are you doing this? Sadly, there's been times in my life, it's probably true of your life, when I've been like Paul. Isn't it funny? He says, what mean you to weep and to break? What are you crying about? What are you worried about? It's amazing the things we will ascribe to faith. Faith is a potent thing. Faith has the ability to buoy us above the doubts and fears that life contains. But sometimes we can take faith, and if we ascribe things uh, to faith, if we, if we veil our bad decisions in the nobility of faith, we often do it to try to lullaby ourselves to sleep when we're going the wrong direction. Paul says, hey, I'm willing to die a martyr's death if that's what I have to do. What are you worried about? He says, what are you weeping and, and, and breaking my heart for? Have you ever heard that? I'm just going to get honest and preach a little bit. You ready? You ever, uh, some of y'all been raising some teenagers in, in your life. You ever have, what, what's the big deal, dad? Mom, why are you making such a big deal out of this? Why is it, why are you getting so upset about this? Hey, if you could see what they can see, you'd probably be upset about it too. You can see what lay down the road. I think it's abundantly clear. We see the proof of Paul's self-deceit. Now let's look at his statement. And I want to say a word about the path of Paul's self-deceit. A man very often does not just wake up one day and, and have fooled himself. Sometimes you have to work pretty hard to convince yourself you're doing what's right when you're doing what's wrong. And I want us to notice, we can see it, we can hear it. His his declaration is dripping with, with, with all of the symptoms of someone that has convinced themselves they're right when they know what they're doing is wrong. Notice some of the things that he said, and I want you to notice these steps. Look back at verse number 18, verse number 18 of chapter number 20, and just stop and think about what he's saying here, all right? We'll just read it together. Just think about the mind frame he's in. When they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind. Pause. That don't sound like a very humble statement to me. That's kind of like saying I pride myself on my humility, right? He's saying, you know how I've labored and you know how humble I've been amongst you. In fact, I'm so humble I'm going to tell you all about it. He says, I've served the Lord with all humility of mine with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you but have showed you and have taught you publicly from house to house testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Look down at verse 31. We didn't read this far, but listen to him say this. He says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Verse 33, he says, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities, and to them that were with me I have labored, or I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Can I tell you something? I don't believe Paul says a single lie there.
1: I believe everything he says
0: is probably true. Here's the question I have. Why does he feel compelled to have to prove himself? Let me say it this way. The first thing he did was he memorialized his devotion. So, what do you mean, preacher? Well, he's saying, hey, let me just prove to you how I've served God. Let me just tell you how in the past I've lived for the Lord. Let me tell you all the things that I have done for God. Let me just ask this question. This may clarify it. Paul, who are you trying to convince? The believers at Ephesus did not need to be convinced. They knew all these things that Paul said. He tells them to remember how he's labored and worked amongst them, how he wept, how he held back nothing that was profitable, how he's done everything that could be expected and asked of an apostle to do. But in other places, he's using very different language. When he writes to the church at Corinth, he says, Yea, I gladly spend all, and am spent for your sakes. Now, here he's saying, I've done enough. Here he's saying, I've paid my debt. Here he's saying, don't forget how good of a Christian I have been. I find that most of the time in my life, when I'm trying to uh, boast and inflate my Christianity, it's usually myself I'm trying to convince and not other people. Usually when the conversation you're having goes something like this, well, you know, I've been serving the Lord all these years. Well, you know, nobody else has done what I've done. Well, you know, nobody else has lived for the Lord the way I have. I mean, who else would, would, would work at the church the way that I do? Who else would would, would pass out tracts like I do? Who else would do? all that? most of the time you ain't trying to convince nobody but yourself. The Lord takes a record of it. And I found this, that God's people are pretty good about paying attention to it too. If you labor and work and if you live for the Lord, not everybody will notice, but enough will notice. What is Paul doing here? The first thing he does, he convinces himself that he has done everything, that he has been a good Christian at the church at Ephesus. Look down at verse 22. Notice what he says. This is fascinating to me. He says, Now behold, I go bound in the Spirit. Under Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, say that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. You know, I think if Paul had pinned this down, he would have capitalized that S. But the Holy Ghost didn't put the pen in Paul's hand. He he, thank God he put the pen in the hand of Luke the physician, who had a clear view of the direction Paul was taking. And he does not capitalize that S. You say, why would that matter, preacher? Well if that was a capital S, it'd be talking about the Holy Ghost. But he wasn't bound in the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. That's apparent because the Holy Ghost was telling him to go the other direction. So what spirit was he bound in? He was bound in his own spirit. I'd say it this way. First, he memorialized his devotion. Number two, he finalized his direction. He said, well, the decision's already made. I got no choice. I've got to go this direction. I found that most of the time when people are making wrong decisions, they reach a point where they tell themselves there's no turning back. He told himself he could not turn back, when the fact is, he could. In fact, God after this would say, Paul, turn back. But sometimes when we're going the wrong direction, we have to convince ourselves that it is a foregone conclusion, that it is our destiny, that we cannot do except what we're doing, because we're trying to ramp ourselves up to make this decision. We're trying to tell ourselves that there's just simply no other way. Can I tell you something? Until you've made the decision, there's still a decision to be made. Until you've made the decision, there's still a decision to be made. Thank God sometimes even after you've made the decision, there's still the decision to be made. Uh, Thank the Lord that you can turn back, you can get right, you can do right. But I'm saying we tell ourselves that it is our destiny when really it's just our determination. He finalized his decision. Number three, look at verse number 24. This is the familiar verse and he opens it this way. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear. Under myself. Now, that sounds good. I mean, that sounds noble. And let me say that if Paul was right, he would be right. If he was going the right direction, that would be a great attitude to have. I think when you're doing the will of God and when you're in the will of God, you ought to have that same kind of devotion. But can I ask you this question? What were these things? He says, none of these things moved me. What does he mean when he says these things? I'm not an English major. People ask me sometimes, do you know Hebrew or Greek? I struggle with English. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> I'm not an English major, but as a typical rule, if you want to understand what's being referenced, you go back and try to find the subject of the of the prior sentence. What was it? He says, Save verse 23, save the Holy Ghost, witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. You know, it's interesting what he did. He said, the bonds and afflictions don't move me. But it wasn't the bonds and afflictions that were trying to move him. It was the Holy Ghost that was trying to move him. Very often, we will take the consequences of our bad decisions and make them the price and toll of our martyrdom. We'll go the wrong direction and then play the victim. And talk about how rough it is, boy. I just, I'm just trying to go on for the Lord and live for the Lord and do for the Lord. And I, everybody's persecuting me and everybody's standing against me. I've known people like that in life. They have a perpetual victimhood mentality. Anything bad that happens, and that if they're, uh, if 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 if, <laughs> if they're eating, a, if they're eating a peach and biting too far and hit the pit, it was persecution. You know, if they're driving down the road and a rock flies up and hits the windshield, it's persecution. Now listen, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I, I do believe the devil can use the small things in life to try to afflict us. But I'm saying this, sometimes what we're doing is reaping what we've sowed. Not eating a peach. I love peaches. Amen. But I'm saying sometimes in life we, we will, here's what he did. You know what he did? Let me say it this way. He lionized his determination. He said, I don't care the cost. You know who else didn't care the cost? Jonah. Son, he he went down, he got in that ship, and he paid the fare. And he said, I don't care what it costs me. When the storm arose, you know what he did? He didn't say, I need to repent. He looked at them fellows and said, just throw me in, I'll die. He was willing to pay the cost. The problem was, it was a cost God never wanted him to pay in the first place. Sometimes, you know what we do? We lionize our determination. We make ourselves a martyr. We make ourselves a victim. We make ourselves the, the, the uh, scion of, of spiritual resolve. And we say, I'll bear anything for the name of Christ. Has God asked you to bear that though? Or is it merely the consequences of your decision? Look at verse 24. He says this, So that I might finish my course with joy. You know what he did? He idealized his desire. Paul says the only way The only way that I can finish my course with joy is to go to Jerusalem. How many times you've heard this before? If you've raised kids, if you've raised teenagers, or if you've pastored some of them, then you know exactly what I'm about to talk about. But Daddy, I can't be happy without Him. Mama, you don't understand. She makes me happy. I can't live without her. Hey, there's even been marriages busted up. And you know what people said? Oh, I've got to have that person. They're what gives me joy in life. How many people have destroyed their homes, destroyed their families, because they said, once I'm making that better paycheck, then I'll be happy. Once I get that promotion, then I'll be happy. You better learn real early where true joy comes from. Christ says, I'll give you joy, and your joy shall no man take. Can't nothing in this life give you joy except the Lord and being in His will? But Paul says here, if I'm going to finish my course with joy, I've got to do this. And very often that's what we tell ourselves. If I'm going to be happy, I have to go this direction. That's one of the tactics that we use. So he idealized his desire. Let me give you another one. Look what he says next. He says, In the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Boy, that sounds good. I mean, that sounds good. I can think of no more noble desire than to want to preach the gospel of the grace of God. And yet Paul was wrong in what he was saying. You know why? Because he told a half-truth. He tried to make it seem as though why he was doing what he was doing was to preach the gospel of the grace of God. You know what I find? I find that the Gentile world was full of lost people that needed to hear the gospel of the grace of God. He could have gone anywhere and preached the gospel of the grace of God. Yea, the hand of God had blessed him. A door of utterance was given unto him. Thessalonica, Ephesus, Corinth, Galatia, on and on. Philippi, we could go. Colossae, he'd been given open doors to preach the gospel of the grace of God. You see, he did the old bait and switch here. He said, all I want to do is serve God. And then he called what he wanted to do, serving God. We do that in our lives. We idolize something, we fixate on it, we convince ourselves it is the will of God, and then we say, I'll do anything for the will of God. Well, that's good and everything, but you better make sure what you're fixated on truly is the will of God. Or else you can convince yourself into doing all kinds of things. You know what he did? He sanitized his decision. He wrapped it up in spiritual motivation. He said, boys, I'm just trying to serve God. When in fact, he was running as hard and as fast as he could away from the revealed will of God. You can make anything sound noble. You can make anything sound spiritual. And the fact is, by the way, listen now, what he wanted to do was the will of God for somebody else. I'm going to just say that again. What he wanted was the will of God for somebody else. It just wasn't the will of God for him. Can I give you an example? Hey listen, somebody gets fixated on somebody else that's married, that's a spouse, that's, that's got a home, that's made marriage vows. Guess what? That person is the will of God, just not for you. They stood at an altar and commended and committed themselves unto their spouse and unto God, and they said, and, and that, that person became the will, they became the will of God for each other. Now, they may be the will of God for somebody else, but that don't mean they're the will of God for you. Listen, God is doing things in my life, in my heart, in my ministry. It's the will of God for me. If I tried to do something else, I'd be out of the will of God. If somebody else tried to do what I'm doing, they might be out of the will of God. What Paul was doing was the will of God for Peter, just not for Paul. And very often, we can go down a path and road of destruction by trying to uh, corral the will of God into being the same for us that it is for somebody else. Now, there are some things that are the will of God for everybody. But when it comes to the personal revealed will of God concerning the course of your life, you've got to find the will of God for you and not sanitize your decision. And then finally, and I, I, I'm done with the introduction. You know, I know that ain't funny anymore. I say it a lot. But I always get that nervous laughter. And it makes me feel good. I know you don't think it's funny anymore. You're just worried one of these days I'm going to be serious when I say it. Look at verse 25. He says, Now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. See, he knew. He knew the direction he was going. He says, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. Pause. Full stop. That's a bold statement. That's a bold statement. I'm not sure anybody could make that statement except the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He tasted death for every man. I know I couldn't make that statement. I couldn't tell you that everybody in Knoxville, Tennessee, that I'm I'm pure from all their blood, that I've witnessed every one of them. And even, Even if I had everyone in Knoxville, hey, there's a whole big wide world. That's a bold statement He's making. Why is He making that statement? He says, I'm pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. You know what he's doing here? He's getting ready to lead this little group of believers. He knows the wolves are at the door. He knows that the false teachers and, and false prophets and 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 the, the, the theological error and heresies and apostasy are just waiting, just crowding in. And he's walking off and leaving. And so as he leaves, you know what he says? He says, I've done everything I'm expected to do. I'm free from the blood of all men. And then he said, you know, the Holy Ghost hath made you overseer of this flock, not me. Therefore, take heed to the calling and commission that God's given you. You know what he's doing? He's rationalizing his desertion. He knows that he's getting ready to walk away and leave these believers to false teachers and to many perils and dangers. So before he goes, he convinces himself that he's really done all that anyone could expect him to do. That he's fulfilled his calling, with Kenny. And whatever happens to them, that's on them. You know, it's amazing. Anytime we walk out of the will of God, we don't just walk out of the will of God, we walk away from the will of God. What is the will of God? The will of God is the plan of God for our life, and it involves certain responsibilities, certain callings and duties. God is using you in certain ways. God is using me in certain ways. And when we walk away from the will of God, you know what happens? We leave those offices, those responsibilities, those duties, those obligations. We leave them desolate and give an open door for Satan to come in and to destroy and to devour. He knew if he walked off, these believers barely had a chance. So he had to convince himself that it wasn't his job. I've seen this as a pattern in in the few years I've pastored. Most of the time when people are getting ready to quit on church, they start pulling away from all their places of service, all of their responsibilities, all of their offices. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are times people get ill and get sick and there's times that that, uh, responsibilities arise in life and There are occasions when a person must step back and see to those more personal issues and and responsibilities. But as a general rule, when people are on their way out, this is why as a pastor, most of the time, people don't just fall out of the window like Eutychus. They head that direction. And the sad truth is, as a pastor, very often you can see when people have leaving on their mind. Because you see him begin to withdraw from fellowship with believers, withdraw from responsibilities, withdraw from places of duty and of action and of office in the church. And oftentimes they'll tell themselves things like, well, you know, it's time for somebody else to step up. It's time for somebody else to step in. Hey, listen, it might be good for somebody else to step in, but, you know, I've seen people say that when they're wanting nobody to step in. I remember, I won't get too deep in it, it don't edify and it don't matter, but I remember one time somebody resigned in a Sunday school class and this is what they said to me. They said, Preacher, I'm sure you've probably got other people that can teach that class. Now this person wasn't just stepping back for personal reasons or family reasons. They were getting out and they did wind up getting out. But I was struck by that statement that they make. I- I'm sure you've probably got other people that could teach that class. You want to know the truth of the matter? God did provide somebody, but at that moment, we didn't have a long list of people waiting to teach a Sunday school class. Where'd that person get that idea? They had developed it in their own mind. Made them feel better about walking away from that class, walking away from those kids, walking away from that calling, walking away from that responsibility. It made them feel better about abandoning their post by telling themselves, well, there'll be somebody else step in. These men can tell you, Brother Larry can tell you, Brother Taylor can tell you, some of these other church men, they can tell you, the house of God, listen, it it takes everybody. It takes everybody. It takes everybody. But we convince ourselves, well, if I walk away, there'll be somebody else. Sad truth is, you might walk away and there might not be anybody else. And the ministry might suffer. Paul, he rationalized his desertion. Well, let me give you a final thought. and I'm, just gonna, I'm not even going to preach. I ain't even going to go near that pulpit. Does that make you feel better? I'm just going to say them to you and I'm going to quit and I'm going to be done. All right? What was the product of Paul's self-deceit? What happened as a result of it? Well, I noticed three things took place. Paul goes on to Jerusalem, and uh, when he gets there, James and, and some of the other church elders and leaders, they come to him and they say, Paul, you know, the Jews here at Jerusalem, they're kind of nervous, because they've been hearing word that you've been telling people not to keep the law, and you've been telling people they don't have to be circumcised and things like that. And, and Paul had just said, everybody's mind at ease. If you would go and take a vow and perform a sacrifice in the temple and just show everybody that you're you're not against the law, you're not against the, the, the teachings of Moses, would you be willing to do that? Paul says, yes, I will. He goes into the temple, he makes a vow, he shaves his head. He spends seven days performing that vow, that duty. And then it's when he goes back into the temple to perform the sacrifice that the Jews get in an uproar and arrest him. Here's a question I have. What is the man that wrote the book of Galatians doing? Shaving his head and taking a Jewish vow. What is the man that wrote in the book of Colossians that... Christ has taken the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, it was contrary to us, nailing it to His cross, he, he took it out of the way. What What's the man that in the book of Hebrews said that Christ suffered without the gate, meaning without uh, of Judaism, meaning He was considered unclean by ceremonial law. What's that man doing going back within the gate and taking a vow on himself and performing a ceremonial vow of Judaism? What's that man doing walking into the temple to shed animal blood and to commit a sacrifice? What's that man doing that said that it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. What was he doing taking that vow? You know, I found this. When we get out of the will of God, our values will be sacrificed. You get out of the will of God, sooner or later the world's going to ask something of you that goes contrary to what God says. Not only that, I, I find it interesting, and it's easy to miss this if you don't read through your Bible carefully, but back in chapter number 18, we have God speaking to Paul. Now, this was not terribly uncommon in that day of, of apostles and before the word of God was completely finished, that God would speak audibly uh, to, to apostles in particular. God would speak to Paul. And in chapter 18, Paul goes to Corinth. And he does, as was his custom, he goes and, and he preaches to the Jews first and declared that Jesus was, was the Christ, was the Messiah. And the Bible says that the, the Jews opposed themselves, meaning they, they were they were irrational. They weren't even willing to talk to him in rational terms. And Paul gets frustrated and he shakes the dust off of his feet. And he says, I, he says, I henceforth will go to the Gentiles. And he turns around and walks off. And he leaves and he says, you know, I'm, I'm not the apostle of the Jews anyway. I'm the apostle of the Gentiles. What am I doing doing this? And he leaves. Well, that night there's an uproar of Jews in the city and they, they conspire to kill Paul. And God appears to Paul that night and says, Paul, don't fear. I have much people in this city. Basically says, Paul, you're doing the right thing. Don't worry about it. I'll protect you. I'll watch over you. That's in chapter 18 when he's at Corinth. It's at the end of that chapter that Paul makes a statement that he will by all means go to Jerusalem. And you know what you'll find? Other than when Paul quotes the Lord Jesus in Acts chapter 20, You won't find a drop of red ink between Acts 18 and Acts 22. God doesn't speak once to Paul. You know, when you get out of the will of God, your values will be sacrificed. Number two, we see the voice is silenced. God didn't speak to Paul once from Acts 18 when he said, I'm going to Jerusalem from that time forward. And you know when God finally did speak to him? When he was already arrested and was being led out from Jerusalem to Caesarea Philippi. In other words, when he was being led away from the place of his disobedience, when he was being led away from the place of his rebellion, then the voice of God spoke again. But all through that interval, God didn't speak. Now, now, wait a minute. Let me rephrase that. God did speak to him. Not in audible voice, but the Holy Ghost did speak to him. In fact, in every city, the Holy Ghost witnessed that bonds and afflictions abide in Here's the problem. There was only one note in the song that the Holy Ghost wanted to sing. Only one topic that God wanted to talk to Paul about. And that was, Paul, you're going the wrong direction. You know why the voice didn't speak any further? Because Paul wouldn't listen to that voice. That's what we call quenching the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of God is dealing with you, guess what, until you get it right, He ain't going to talk to you about anything else. He he, he ain't going to talk to you about what car to buy or what house to buy. He ain't going to talk to you about whether to get that promotion. He ain't going to talk to you about how to uh, parent and how to guide your kids. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Word of God still has the ability to instruct us. And you know, I'm convinced of this. That's how people live out of the will of God. There's a difference between hearing the voice in the Word and hearing the voice from the Word. And a person can live reading the Bible and accepting its instruction while living completely out of communion with the Spirit of God. They'll still hear the voice, but it won't speak to them the way it does when we're in tune with the Spirit of God. You see, everywhere he went, the Holy Ghost did talk to him. But he didn't want to talk about anything but what direction Paul was going. So Paul just ignored him. The voice was silenced. You know, finally, I'm done. I see that his vision was stifled. Paul would go to Jerusalem. He'd be taken to Caesarea Philippi. There he would make one of the great mistakes of his life. He would appeal to Caesar. That's that's a funny thing for a man that said that he bows his knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and none other for him to say, I appeal unto Caesar. But he said that as a Roman citizen. Then once he said, I appeal unto Caesar, he was going to Caesar. Even he himself could not have changed at that point. He was bound by law to be carried to Rome. He gets on a boat. You know the story you can read in the book of Acts about the shipwreck and the Isle of Miletus and everything. He winds up in Rome. And that's where Paul's scriptural story stops. Now his life went on and there's speculation about he got out of prison and and went maybe to Spain and some people even think as far as the British Isles and and everything. That might be possible. But God had nothing more to say about Paul's life after he wound up in Rome in chains. To our knowledge, he never planted another church to our knowledge, he never went and preached another revival. God did use him to pin down 14 books of the New Testament. Some of those were already pinned before Paul went, but with several books of the New Testament. But I'm saying this, the scope of what Paul could have done with his life was shrunk because of his disobedience. Can I tell you something? The will of God is the greatest thing in the world for you. The will of God is the biggest thing for you when you trade His will for your will you've traded the greatest for something lesser. You think it's what you want. You think it's what you love. You think you can't be happy without it. But I'm telling you this, God gives His best to those that leave the choice with Him. And if you'll give your heart and life to Him, He'll give you the best. He'll give you the best. Don't tell yourself that lie. Don't walk out of the will of God. Listen clearly and closely to the Word of God, to the Spirit of God, to the truth of God as He directs your life. Let's bow together this morning. As a musician comes to play, the altar's open. I'm not going to ask a hundred questions. If God dealt with you, won't you find a place down here at the altar and just deal with him? Don't quench that voice. Don't turn him away. He may have been speaking to you, dealing with you, working on you. Don't push him away. That's, listen, until you'll talk to him about that, there's nothing else to talk about. So why don't you find a place down here and say, all right, Lord, let's talk about this. Father, bless this invitation. May it up Uplift Christ, make glorify your Son. We ask it in his precious name.